Wonderful to be with you today. So glad to be able to be able to open God's Word. It's the 4th of July. Did you know that the last time that the 4th of July was on a Sunday was in 2010? Crazy, huh? It was 11 years ago. You would think that it would actually work out in the averages. It's only been 34 times since the signing of the Declaration of Independence that the uh, uh, 4th of July has been on a Sunday. So we thought it might be a good, good idea today to take a break from our John series and actually talk about the nature of Christian citizenship. We thought that might be helpful for us. What is Christian citizenship? By the way, I should probably tell you a fun fact about myself. Um, I'm actually a direct descendant of one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. That is true. John Hart of New Jersey was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. You'll find his name on the second to last column on the right. And he was actually probably the most persecuted of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. His his farm was burned by the British soldiers. There was an attack on people. Probably his wife died from wounds um, from that attack. He wandered out or like hid from the British military for like six months or longer out in the forests of New Jersey at that time. And anyway, so I guess my blood in the United States runs pretty deep. And um, I'm very grateful for that. So glad to be um, part of the United States of America. Way more grateful to be a part uh, of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll be talking about that in just a moment. But um, just the the, um, the freedoms that we've experienced in the United States. My wife and I have lived overseas for quite a while. There is no place on the face of the earth where you have as many freedoms as the United States, and we should be grateful for that. Despite the challenges of recent years, that is still something that can truly be said. So we're going to talk about Christian citizenship, the nature of Christian citizenship. And um, let me just get something on the table and then off the table. Um, Christians have actually dealt with Christian citizenship, or that is professing Christians at least, have dealt with this in sometimes some pretty extreme ways. So let me get some of the extremes off the table. We can talk about a little bit of the range in between. Um, One of the ways that people who are self-professing Christians have dealt with citizenship, that is the way Christians interact in the world, is by saying that Christians should use force to impel and compel people to be Christians and to live under Christian society of some sort. That obviously is off the table for us because it distorts what the Christian faith even is. So if if you go deep into that and you start talking about what that perspective is, you just find out you're not in Christian territory at all. So let's just put that one to the side for right now. On the other side of it are the disengagers, the ones who are the rejectionists of um, any sort of engagement with society. And in that, in that particular uh, kind of worldview, which um, has developed a lot over in particular streams of Christian thought over the last well, four, four centuries or so, it, um, it basically is saying that we need to not be involved in anything that is uh, kind of societal, um, you know, government, certainly not the military. Some of you are familiar with the Amish of Pennsylvania and Ohio. They would be a great example of this, but some real extreme fundamentalist Christian groups would also be like this as well. That is not really a Christian o- option. So I just want to remove those edges there and just say, uh, you know, among um, among evangelicals, our way that we, uh, the stream of Christian thought that we are a part of here in this church, there is actually quite a range. There are some people who are very active, running for office, you know, um, 
you know, helping people run for office, involved in a government in many different ways, and in other areas of society, very actively, and some others who are living out their Christian faith in a very faithful sort of way, but as far as like involvement in, in um, like society, they, they vote, <laughs> hopefully, and, um, and that's about it. But there's, there's quite a, a wide range there but how do we decide how we're supposed to live out our lives as Christian citizens? Now let's just get our foundation laid immediately. The first question that needs to be answered is what are we citizens of? And this is clearly addressed in the Bible. This is not ambiguous. This is not like we can have different opinions about this. This is clearly taught in the Bible. The Christian's primary citizenship is not of this world. The Christian's primary citizenship is not being in Brazilian or Nigerian or Indonesian or Romanian or American. The Bible is Christian. The Bible is crystal clear that the Christian citizenship lies somewhere else. John 18:36, Jesus says, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews." But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 just says it straight. Our citizenship is in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We enter this kingdom by being born again into a new family, into a new kingdom, into a new citizenship. We are in the world but not of it, as the Bible also teaches. Now, about 100 years after the New Testament was, um, most of the New Testament was written, there's a document by one, we don't actually know who the author is, but a very thoughtful Christian who is asked to present a defense of the Christian faith to some important leader, someone probably with political clout because of the way he's addressed in here. And this person's name we know that is, the person with clout is named Dionetus, but the person who wrote the document or who spoke the document before it was actually dictated, we don't know his name. But it's one of my favorites of all of the writings of the section that are called the Apostolic Fathers, which is misnamed. It should be called the Post-Apostolic Fathers because these are the uh, Christian writers immediately after the apostles wrote. This is not scripture. This is just a thoughtful early Christian talking about where our citizenship is, how we interact with the world. And it, ah, this is just an amazing passage. I'm just really talking it up before I show it to you. But you'll see it's very thoughtful. It's very helpful. So let me just read it to you. We can put this up on the screen as we go. For Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of humanity by country or language or custom. You can't tell a Christian just by looking at them or hearing how they speak or where they live. They do not live in cities of their own, they do not speak a strange dialect. They do not practice an odd way of life. Although they live in Greek and non-Greek cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow local customs and dress and diet and the rest of daily life, they also exhibit the remarkable and admittedly peculiar nature of their citizenship. They live in their own countries, but still as foreigners. They participate as citizens in everything, but endure everything as strangers. Every foreign land is their home country, and every home country is a foreign land. They marry, like everyone else, and have children, 
but they do not throw away their offspring. They share their food table, but not their marriage bed. They happen to be in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They spend time on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. This author is making the bold claim that Christian citizenship is different. We're like foreigners living in a foreign country. Lots of things are similar, like what we eat, uh, the way that we walk, the way that we dress, we get married, we have children like a lot of other people, but we belong to a different country. So my wife and I lived extended periods of time in two different countries overseas, one for about seven years and one for six months or so. And, um, and while we were there, we tried to take on the customs and eat the food um, of the place that we were. Uh, we took off our shoes when we went into the house in one of those countries. I shaved my beard because that would be better in relating to people. There were just lots of things we did. We lived like them, but we did not belong to them. Our citizenship was not there. We had, our passport actually said something else, and we were foreigners, and we were aware of that, and we lived as foreigners. That's the analogy that we're supposed to use as Christian citizens. We are foreigners. All of us who actually know Jesus are foreigners, and we're to live as foreigners. We belong to a heavenly citizenship, our citizenship is pri not primarily in this world, it is somewhere else. Two weeks ago, Trudy and I, we went down to the Department of Motor Vehicles and we got our real ID. It came in the mail this week. There it is, right there with the little golden bear in the top right-hand corner. That's how you know you have a real ID. Brothers and sisters, our real ID is not in the United States or as citizens of California, or as uh, part of LA County, or Orange County, or Brea, or La Habra, or La Mirada, or Norwalk, or Whittier, our citizenship is somewhere else. We need to know this. The Bible clearly teaches it. Your citizenship is to a heavenly kingdom. Now there's lots and lots of benefits in knowing that your citizenship belongs to a different kingdom. You know, uh, you get direction in life knowing that. Uh, it helps you in suffering, for sure. Your prayer life is impacted by that. I'm not gonna talk about any of the benefits of this today. I actually wanna go to a key passage on Christian citizenship and talk about actually living it out because Paul gives us actually some direction on this in the book of Philippians, chapter one, verses 27 to 28. But sometimes we don't realize that this is actually a passage or these two verses that are tucked in between some other wonderful, important verses that often distract us from seeing them. We often don't realize that it's about living out our lives as citizens in this world, partially because of the way it's translated. So the very key, let's just put this up on the screen and let me read it to you and then we'll talk about it. Here it is, Philippians 1, 27 and 28. Only live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So there's a key word in this, um, in this paragraph, and that is the word 
That is a word that often doesn't come through into our English translations. Let me just explain. When translators are trying to translate the Bible from Greek, in this case, into English, they have to sometimes struggle with whether or not a word is more kind of mundane, more kind of regular, or whether it carries other nuances with it, kind of extra richer nuances with it. And you can tell by looking at the various translations that some of the translations think that this word is a little bit more on the mundane side, but quite a lot of the recent comments and most of the commentators and some of our translations think that it's got richer nuances with it. That is civic or citizenship nuances toward it. And I'm convinced that it's, it's more of the, the latter. Um, in other words, if you were reading in Greek, which I know most of you don't, I'm not trying to make any separation here, but let's say you're reading along, it would stand out at you. You would see the verb, polituomai, and you would go, oh, that's the main verb. Everything else works underneath this. But that doesn't show up in some of our translations that just say things like, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, or conduct yourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel, or one of the translations a lot of us use, just use a to-be verb, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's, that's very minimalistic in this case. Whereas, one Greek dictionary defines the main verb this way, live as a citizen, figuratively in the New Testament of how one lives as belonging to God's kingdom. Commentator Moise Silva, who was actually one of my former teachers, writes, Paul's use of the term polituma, citizenship, in Philippians 3.20 suggests that already here in 127, he may be appealing to the Philippians' sense of civic duty. Let me explain what he's saying. He's saying that because Paul uses the nounish form of the verb that's here just two chapters later on, that he already, he's probably allowing that nuance to show up in this passage as well. The New Living Translation translates the verb in 127 as, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the Christian Standard Bible, which is a recent um, translation, a very good one actually, translates it as, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I think that that's doing a good job bringing out the connotation that is here. So I'm, I'm using that and trying to help us think about our citizenship following the Apostle Paul. In other words, Philippians 1, 27 to 28 is about living your life in the world as a Christian citizen. Now, this really actually becomes... Um, powerful when you think about who he's writing to. I honestly think that this is a more powerful statement in the book of Philippians than it would be in any of the other books of the New Testament. And the reason for that is because Philippi was a Roman colony. I know, I know when I said that, that that didn't impact you very much, but it's different than other places in the, old, in, in the New Testament world. Let me explain. Philippi is like a thousand miles away from Rome, but it's little Rome. It has been, for the last 80 or 90 years, it's been populated by ex-military people who, because of their service in the Roman military, are given land and a place, and sometimes citizenship for a few of them, anyway, in Philippi. And so Philippi, as a city, even though it's small, it's only 30,000 people, not compared to the massive, sprawling Rome, um, it is organized like little Rome. Uh, it, the leading people of the city were Roman citizens. The style and architecture of the city are modeled after Rome. Its constitution 
was Roman in nature. The government was by Romans, and the people there were very nationalistic in relationship to Rome. And Paul has the gall to say to the Christians here, um, live as citizens of a different kingdom. You are citizens of heaven. It's almost, it's almost as appalling as a I don't know, a Christian preacher standing up on the 4th of July and telling an American audience that your citizenship, primary citizenship, is not to the United States. It is to a different kingdom. And you know what? I feel very confident in saying that, even with confidence, because Paul is doing something that would have been viewed even kind of more jarring because of the setting that he's writing into. Now, in the second century, right around the time that that earlier letter that I read to you, the Diognetus document that I read to you a minute ago was, was being said right around that time, there was an elderly church leader, pastor, and kind of overall a large area of Asia Minor uh, leader named Polycarp, who some of you have heard of. He was standing trial for being a Christian. It is really a farce trial. It wasn't done well. He's actually in the place where he's gonna be killed. And, but, but it's been documented, it was written by eyewitnesses about what actually took place. The accusations um, and, and the dialogue that goes on is really quite long, so I just want to read you a little section of this, and the reason I'm reading this to you is not to show you his courage, his bravery, but rather to show you how Polycarp identified. Okay, let's put that up on the screen. But the proconsul was insistent and said, Swear the oath and I will let you go. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him and he has never wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But the proconsul continued to insist, saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar. In other words, say that Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go. So Polycarp replied, If you vainly expect that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and pretend that you do not know who I am, then listen carefully. I am a Christian. In other words, Polycarp knew where his identity was. He was a Christian before everything else. He wasn't a Greek, though that was his ethnicity. He wasn't a Roman, though he, didn't, he lived his entire life under Roman rule. He knew that he was a Christian first and foremost before everything else, and we need to realize the same thing. So let's get into our passage just a little bit. Philippians 1, 27 to 28. It's Philippians 1, 27 to 28. There's one main idea and really four subsidiary ideas that fall underneath it that tells you about how to go about doing this. So the main idea is live out your Christian citizenship. That's the main idea. Live out your Christian citizenship. Secondary ideas answer how. How do you do this? First, by conducting yourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ, by standing firm in one spirit, by striving together for the faith of the gospel, and by not being afraid of those who oppose you. Those are the four main how answer issues. So let's take a few minutes and work through each of these in turn. First of all, we live as Christian citizens by conducting ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean? to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It means that everything that you do in society, whether you're interacting with a neighbor or a coworker or a stranger or trying to run for a political office, everything gets run through the grid of, does this exalt Jesus Christ? Is this worthy of the gospel 
of Jesus. So any time that you're wondering about a particular action, ask whether or not what you are doing is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, does it comport with the good news about forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on the cross to all who will receive it? Suppose that you're thinking of writing something on social media about one of the hot-button issues in our day. Before you do, can I implore you to say, is this worthy of the gospel of Christ? When you have a conversation with a friend or a coworker that starts to move toward politics or justice or one of the social issues of our day, can you please have a conversation going in your head saying, is what I'm saying right now or what I'm about to say worthy of the gospel of Christ? I mentioned Polycarp a few minutes ago and that his death had been written down um, in a document known as the, the Martyrdom of Polycarp by people who had actually seen uh, what had happened. So basically, there was, there was an invitation from a church, a little place called Philomelium, who wanted, after Polycarp had been killed, wanted to know what had happened. So they began to write this down, but they wrote a long document, not just for that church, but for other churches as well. And it actually has become one of the most prized documents in the history of the Christian church. But it's really interesting, if you take a look at this document, early in the document and late in the document, emphasize very strongly, you can tell what they're doing there. They want to make sure that they communicate that Polycarp's life and Polycarp's death, in their own words, was lived in accordance with the gospel. That's the main point that they're making there. In other words, Polycarp was an example, and to many people later on in history, he became an example of somebody who lived his life in accordance with the gospel, and that's what we need to do too. So the first way that we actually live out our Christian citizenship, we need to make sure that our words and actions are worthy of the gospel of Christ. Number two, the second thing, we live as Christian citizens by standing firm in one spirit. So when Paul thinks about how to impact society, it's not just that we're a bunch of Christians living out our lives in various places. He wants to work from a core, a core of Christians who know each other and love each other and are committed to the Word of God, who are together uh, solid enough so that as things are impact, as, as uh, words and the message of Christ are impacting society, they can be brought into Christian communities. But you can't do that if you're not actually living as Christians in society. And there was actually a problem in Philippi that, that Paul addresses in chapter 4. There are two women in the Christian community in Philippi who aren't getting along with each other very well. Their names are Yodia and Suntuke. Sometimes they're referred to as odious and stinky because they're not getting along very well. I don't know who came up with those names, but I think it's pretty funny actually. Um, and Paul writes in chapter 4, not just to them, but to somebody else in the congregation saying, could you help me out and try to help reconcile these two women? And these aren't just random women either. He describes them as women who have shared in the ministry of the gospel, along with Paul and another guy named Clement. He's talking about them there. In other words, you should be reconciled together because we need to do that for the sake of the mission that he talks so much about in Philippians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4 especially. You know, we need to actually be reconciled with one another. We need to be living as Christians. We need to be in one spirit, as it's talking about here. 
Trudy and I went up this week for one day um, up to Forest Home Christian Camp up in the um, Sierras, not too far from here, up above Redlands, California. And uh, we went up there because our daughter, Anna, is working at this Christian camp this summer. She's actually a, um, a tech for uh, like projection and um, for sound for the junior high and high school camp. And actually, let me just say this. She learned a lot of the skills that she's using there here at Redemption Hill Church by serving in our tech ministry, you know, learning from people like Chris and, and Jeff and Sarah and many others who, who serve here in that, which is a, a wonderful ministry. Based upon that, she actually got this job and she's running this, these, these huge, in this huge amphitheater, um, all the tech stuff that's going on there. So we wanted to go up and see her and she was so excited to have us come. She's introducing us to all the other people that she's working with, some who are counselors, some who are doing rec time, some who are cleaning rooms, some who are doing food service, all of them who are working together for a particular purpose. Now, they don't just give them a job and send them out, right? They meet together regularly. They've got people over them who are speaking into their lives, who are mentoring them and teaching them new stuff. It's kind of like the type of thing you do in a church. Makes a good analogy here. You can't do your job unless you have that encouragement, this one spirit, this one mind together. I love that as an analogy of the church. We need to have a solid core to be able to reach out into, um, in, into our communities. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian who was killed by the Nazis during World War II, he wrote a little book called Life Together about Christian community. He describes how Christians are supposed to live together, and the main ideas of the book are summarized by Frank Thielman. Let me read those to you. Christians, Bonhoeffer says, should hold their tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother, cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that they, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by his grace. Christians listen long and patiently so that they will understand their fellow Christians' need. They refuse to consider their time and callings so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs no matter how small or menial. They bear the burden of their brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Declare God's word to their fellow believers when they need to hear it. And understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service. So if we want to live as Christian citizens, we need to pay special attention to how we interact with other Christians because that is part of the way we interact with society. So we live as Christian citizens, first by conducting ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ, and second, by standing firm in one spirit. Thirdly, we live as Christian citizens by striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now notice that this passage does not say we strive or struggle against people. It's we're striving and struggling to get the gospel out. In other words, for the sake of the gospel. Some translations translate this not simply as struggling together, but as struggling side by side for the faith of the gospel. One older translation translated as as one man, so as one person struggling or striving for the sake of the gospel. 
And a good example of this, I mean, Paul himself is writing about this, but he, he himself is on a missionary journey. And you'll know, any of you who have studied the book of Acts, that there's, there's three missionary journeys, then his journey to Rome, and there's probably a fourth missionary journey also later on that we can kind of piece together pieces from the pastoral epistles and some other places as well, some documents from church history. Anyway, so he's going all over the place trying to reach people with the gospel. And a lot of people have a view of Paul that he's like this on his own, kind of a cowboy in the Wild West, reaching people with the gospel, and that is so not Paul. On his first missionary journey, he's hanging out with Barnabas, who's kind of like a mentor to him. They're working closely together. There's other people with him. On his second missionary journey, and third and beyond that, he's hanging out with Sil Silas, who's also known as Silvanus. And there's Timothy, um, who he mentors in the faith, but becomes just one of his co-workers later on. And Titus, him too. And um, Luke, who's with him in prison in some places and traveling along with him in a number of places and is probably the author of Acts and using the we comments in, in Acts. And then there's people you, you never hear anything about, like Trophimus and Aristarchus and Gaius. And then there's Priscilla and Aquila who are ministering with him in Corinth. These are people that he loved and he walked with and he suffered with and he laughed with and he rejoiced with and probably told jokes to, and, and they were working in community together because they were, but they weren't just living in community like community by itself is a good thing. They were living in community for a purpose. We work together in our mission. Some of us like to read old missionary biographies. I do, actually. But sometimes those old um, missionary biographies, they, they kind of like make it as though it's like a one person doing their own thing on their own, which they sometimes did, and God uses all of us in whatever situations we're in. But if you were to become a long-term missionary overseas, you're not going to be on your own. Any mission organization is going to put you in a team because of the biblical example and the basic need that you need to be there. We work in teams. Trudy and I were living in a city in the Middle East um, on a team, an international team of people from all over the world. And we wanted to start a new mission in, a, in an unreached city that had no Christians in it at all. So we went to our field leader and said, we'd like to do this. And he and a bunch of other people, we all started to pray about this, finally decided this is great. Trudy and Ken should go do this. But you need a team, at least one other household to go with you to get this thing started. So we kept looking for people who might be willing to go with this. And this wasn't an easy thing to actually take on. You need to know that. Um, and um, then there was a South African guy who had gotten to know a good man who wanted to go with us, but you know he didn't have a roommate. Um, and so we started to pray for a roommate for him. And we kept looking for a roommate, couldn't find a roommate. Finally, we introduced him to a really nice Brazilian girl and he married her and got a roommate and they moved up with us, <laughs> which is really a great way to do it. Um, Anyway, and we served with them in ministry. We joined up with another American family. Later on, a German family joined with us, and, and usually they weren't all there at the same time, but we worked in a team. That is exactly the same thing that happens in the Christian mission in a church community in Whittier, California. We are a team together. We need each other. We work with each other. We encourage each other. We spur each other on to actually make a difference in the world that is around us. So what is, though, our mission? 
Certainly we desire for love to be communicated, for justice to be instituted, for economic growth and fair housing, good prison conditions, and so many other things that take place. But we care even more about the long view that people come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our primary mission is to introduce people to the good news of what God did through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his invitation to us to enter that by faith. Caleb and Hannah were standing up there. They were talking about how we need to have an eternal perspective. Exactly. They nailed it just right. When you have an eternal perspective, it changes the way you feel about going out and sharing on the beach when you're so nervous or anywhere else, or talking to a neighbor, or a coworker, or any other way that you communicate the gospel to someone else. So if we want to live as Christians in the world, and we want to make an impact in the world, living out our Christian citizenship, we have to live worthy of the gospel first. We have to stand firm in one spirit. Second, we have to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And fourth, we live as Christian citizens by not being afraid of those who oppose us. This week, I read a number of articles which demonstrate that anxiety disorders rooted in fear seem to be on the increase. Now, people are afraid of a lot of different things, but increasingly, they are afraid of people. They are afraid of each other. This past period of pandemic, of social un societal unrest, and people venting on social media platforms has thrown fuel on the fire of increased anxiety and fear. But this verse clearly says, Paul is saying under the authority and under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we should not be afraid of our opponents. I mean, what can they do to us? There are many, I, I want to give you an example of this, but I want to be really careful of this because there are many reasons why people do this. So as all of us know, um, there are people, including Christians, who are moving out of California right now. And some of us are really sad about this because they're our friends and we really like them and we really miss them. And, um, and it, it even impacts our churches too. Now, my wife and I have moved, I think, eight times in our adult life. And we've, we've had reasons that we've moved and people who move to other places sometimes move because they want to be closer to family. Totally legitimate reason. Another totally legitimate reason is because they have work in another place, so they move there. Another really good reason is that they just are struggling so much financially here that they can't make it. And so all of you know it's expensive to live in Southern California. But some people are moving for fear. And, and, um, and the people who are moving out of fear, sometimes it's because they're afraid of increased violence. And there has been an increase in violence in Southern California during this last year, sometimes because of government overreach. And we certainly have seen examples of government overreach in Southern California, too. But we should not, brothers and sisters, be afraid and let that drive our decisions. This is not the way Christians have lived during history. We cannot be driven by fear. Paul says elsewhere, God has not given to us a spirit of fear. By the way, we also need people in Southern California I mean, just think, what if all the Christians leave Southern California? This is one of the most important places on the face of the globe to make sure that a Christian presence is known. So let's work together as we are here. Again, please don't misunderstand me. If God calls you somewhere else, I mean, I've moved eight times. God has called us many different times. Great, go, follow the Lord's lead. But let us not be driven 
by fear. Sometimes Trudy and I, when, we, um, when we're talking about something that we're afraid of, we actually just do a thought experiment. We just say, what's the worst thing that could happen here? Which sounds all very grim and very negative and everything there, but really it's very helpful as a Christian. What's the worst thing that could happen here? And usually the thing that we come up with is not as bad as what most Christians have faced during history, or a lot of Christians have faced, or, or even are facing right now um, in the world. It is very unlikely that we will face something as severe as Polycarp or some of the other people who died with him since there were 12 who were killed in Smyrna during that period of time. Polycarp was the last. His martyrdom actually stopped the wave of persecution that had happened at that time. Um, and I, I actually want to show you one little more section from Polycarp's, um, from the document about his death. Again, not to just try to show you, you know, sort of glorify what happened there, but to show you what happened as he was filled with the Holy Spirit and how he dealt with the issue of fear. Here it is. Let's put it up on the screen. The proconsul replied, persuade the people. But Polycarp said, you I could count worthy of a response, for we have been taught to appropriately respect rulers and authorities appointed by God as long as it does us no harm. As they're bringing a defense to them, I do not consider them worthy. What he means by that is actually that there's a mob that's forming right now. So he's not, he doesn't want to address the whole people, but of course he's going to speak with respect to this governmental leader. The proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them unless you turn away. He said, call them. Repentance from better to worse is impossible for us, but it is good to turn away from those things that are evil and toward those that are righteous. Again, the proconsul said to him, I will have you consumed by fire since you don't care about wild beasts unless you turn. Polycarp replied, you threaten with fire that burns for an hour, then soon is extinguished. For you do not know about the coming judgment and the eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. So why do you delay? Bring on what you want. As he spoke these and many other words, he was filled with courage and joy and his face was filled with grace. So not only did he not collapse in terror at the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his own herald into the middle of the stadium to announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. No longer is he saying, I am a Christian. Now it's being announced to everyone else. This is Polycarp's identity. And he was killed for that, but he was not afraid. It doesn't mean that he didn't feel the natural fear. You need to understand that. But within the perspective of having lived his whole life in Jesus Christ, at least 86 years, some people think he lived to be as old as 104, he was not afraid based upon that, and he knew where he was going. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, are light and momentary afflictions. This is Paul who was beaten with rods three times and scourged five times and, you know, a night and day in the deep. He had dangers from robbers and dangers from rivers. He was shipwrecked three times, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He actually gets shipwrecked one more time in Acts chapter 27. I mean, this is Paul, and he says, my, in light of eternity, in light of our citizenship, which is in heaven, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our sufferings are light and momentary. What is the worst thing that could happen to us? Let us not be afraid of that. We cannot be driven by fear. So we live out our Christian citizenship by 
One, living according to the gospel. Two, standing firm together with other Christians in one spirit. Three, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And four, not being afraid of our opponents. But brothers and sisters, the main thing I wanted to bring to you today, uh, above everything else I want to say, I wanted to make sure that we, we were reminded today that our primary citizenship is a heavenly citizenship. Our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. We should be thankful that we are Americans. If we're Americans, some of us may not be here, or we should be thankful that we were born as Brazilian or Koreans or South Africans or Germans or whatever. Great, wonderful, but if we are Christians, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, our primary citizenship is somewhere else, and we need our lives to actually show the character of that citizenship. Let's talk to the Lord about this. Lord, Father in heaven, you have heard every word that has come out of my mouth right now. I've sought to do it according to your word and to be rooted in what is actually taught by the revelation that was given in your word. But Lord, I pray that anything that I've said that has been misunderstood, that you will, you, will, um, you will help clarify that to people, that they will understand what it is to be a Christian citizen, to live out their civic duties, to live out their relationships with other people, uh, to live out everything from politics to friendships, to work, to entertainment, all of this, the way that we engage with society, Lord, I pray that we will come to know that we are primarily citizens of heaven. And God, I pray for anyone here who has not been living that way right now, any Christians here, Lord, who, have, who need to actually confess to you that they have not been living that way, I pray, God, that right now, through your spirit, you will move on their hearts and they will be reminded that their citizenship is in heaven, that they are part of this body that they are part of a different kingdom of which Jesus Christ is over and he is the head. Lord, forgive us when we don't live this way and help us by your spirit and guide us into the way that we should live in honoring you according to the gospel, not alarmed by our opponents, living in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.